I just want to take a moment to thank our worship team. If you uh, have been with us any time, you know that uh, recently our, our director of worship for two years, Eric Robertson, who does countless number of jobs here at our campus, has, uh, he's transitioned full-time into our technical director. Uh, so he'll still be around. It wasn't anything bad or anything like that. We love him. We miss him. Our uh, new director of worship is going to arrive at the end of the month, hopefully, fingers crossed. He's Canadian, so there's some questions there. But I'm um, uh, really excited for that. But in the meantime, I, our worship volunteers are wonderful people. I mean, you have no idea the work that they put in behind the scenes. And waking up ahead of all of us this morning to plow and make sure that they're here. Uh, I'm just so grateful for you guys. I know you've disseminated on I see Teresa, so there you go. But thank you so much for leading us. It's, it's so good at the start of church, we can, you know, we can come in with so many different things on our mind, and so to have that space at the front of our service, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, it's an odd thing that Christians get together and sing songs together, but the reason why we do that is so that by the time that we're coming to, our word, to the Word of God, our hearts and our minds have been centered. Even just the last few verses of that, that song, all my life you've been faithful, I will sing of the goodness of God. That, that's so that when we come and we hear about this God of whom we are singing, that our hearts are ready to hear. This is, this is good news. This is a God who is good and is faithful. So we're going to jump right in on that. I, I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of a series right now called Praying with Paul. And I want to start by asking you this question. Can you remember the first prayer that you ever learned in your life? The first time you heard someone pray? Uh, I, I think the first time I really heard a prayer... I was in elementary school in England. We call it primary school. And what we used to do uh, back in those days, I don't know whether they still do it now, is you would go to an assembly together, and at the start of every assembly, you would pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. So that was, that was the, the first prayer I had. I had a brilliant joke about this as well, about a kid that was taught the Lord's Prayer. And their Sunday school teacher said, hey, do you, what is God's name? Do you all know God's name? And the kid said, it's Howard. And the Sunday school teacher said, why is it Howard? She said, well, because our Father, who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> so uh, just keep that in the back pocket for sermons, you know, good Christian joke. But uh, there are many, there's any number of prayers that we learn when we're younger or we've, we've come across somewhere. Um, I used to think that I have to hold my hands together like this, like a radio antenna, that if my hands weren't perfectly aligned, that somehow wouldn't reach God. Um, and then there's like the terrifying prayers that you hear when you're a kid, like the now I lay me down to rest. Anybody used to pray that when they were a kid? Did you have nightmares as a result of praying this? If I die before I wake. I don't know why that became a children's prayer. Or let's be honest, at some point in your life, you have prayed this, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, right? Have you heard that one before, before meals? Maybe I'm the uh, only heretical Christian here. But I think, honestly, when we think about this topic of prayer and we think about the any number of, of prayers that we've had out there, sometimes we are in desperate need of some guidance and some counsel from God on prayer. We don't know where to begin. We don't know what to say, how to say it. Dear Carson, one of my favorite theologians said, sadly, although there are a few signs of resurgence, prayer in the West has fallen on hard times. And there are a few models to hold up to a new generation of believers. What he's saying is that, that we're confused often about prayer. There's so many ways that we could pray, so many things that we need to pray about, we get lost, and so we don't even start, because we don't know where to begin. And so for the next few weeks as a church family, we're looking at the prayers of Paul, because there is a model right there in Scripture, in the prayers of Paul, that is trustworthy, that is so gracious, and it can help disciple us, train us, teach us how to pray. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with Paul, it's, it's easy. He's one of those names that gets tossed around in church, but it's always good to remind ourselves of who this is. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was at one time a persecutor of Christianity. He was what was called a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in Judaism, and he thought the whole idea of Christianity was not only offensive, but dangerous. And so he would round Christians up, have them arrested, and often he would make sure that they were stoned to death. They were killed. So he was, he was about as militantly against Christianity as you can get. And then one day, Jesus himself appears to Paul and blinds him, puts him on his knees and reveals to him the truth of the gospel, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And so Paul gets involved with the church. He starts growing as a Christian. He becomes the primary missionary in the early years of the church. Imagine that, the, the guy that had at one time been arresting and killing Christians is now the biggest advocate for the message of Jesus. And he writes these letters in the New Testament. Most of your New Testament is letters that Paul wrote out to churches trying to encourage them and counsel them in how to live faithful lives to Jesus. And one of the things he does consistently is he prays for the church. He prays for the church to teach them, this is the things that you should be asking God for. This is the way in which you should be approaching your Father in heaven. So he has these beautiful prayers. And when we read them, I think it's striking that he doesn't often pray like we do. He doesn't often pray for the kinds of things that we do. We said last week that prayer is an effort to know God better. It's, it's an effort to sit with God and to know him, to share life with him, to engage with him. Tim Keller said that a rich, vibrant, consoling, hard-won prayer life is the one good that makes it possible to receive all other kinds of goods rightly and beneficially. Paul does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but to get more of God himself. Prayer is not about getting more things from God, it's about getting more of God himself, to engage in life with him. So we're going to pick up in the same letter that we left off in last week, just a few chapters forward, a letter called Ephesians. And we're going to look at another prayer in that same letter that Paul prays for the church in Ephesians 3, because he's going to pray for the church to have power to grow in God. Prayer is an effort to know God, and prayer is an effort to grow in God. Let me ask you this. Is your prayer life most often, in most circumstances, is it an effort to maintain your current experience of life, or is it an effort to grow out of your current experience of life? When you pray, is it, God, help me keep things as they are right now. I want to make sure I don't lose this, and I want to get a little bit more of this that I have right now. Or is prayer an effort to say, God, grow me beyond where I'm at right now. Take me deeper into who you are. Paul prays for the church to grow. He prays in three ways in particular in Ephesians 3. That they would grow in faith, that they would grow in community, and that would grow in grace. So let's take a look at growing in faith. Now, I've uh, often told stories about me and Janae because we have very different personalities. And uh, my favorite is when we go on date nights because the kind of games and, and fun I like to play on date nights are very different than the kind of games and fun that Janae likes to play. So, for example, one day we were taking a walk, I think by the river trail, and we were going past the houses. You know those houses in downtown Geneva that are like a million dollars? Huge, huge houses. I said, what, what would you do, Janae, if you won the lottery and you could buy a house like that? And Janae's answer is, well, I'd invest it reasonably, and I'd, I'd probably set some aside, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, what? Why I would buy a car, I would buy a mansion, I would go to Barbados, I would get crazy with it, right? We, we always play games like that, and I, I'm always overly imaginative. Now, 
in the, the letter of Ephesians, the idea that Paul's trying to get across to the church is you've won the lottery. You have won the lottery because God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one in whom all things find their center and their fullness has given himself to you. He's poured out his love on you. And now what Paul's gonna challenge the Ephesians to do in chapter three, he's gonna challenge them to ask themselves, how are you spending the love of God in your life? Where is it going? This infinite love that has been poured out on you through the cross, through Christ's life, death and resurrection, where is that being spent in your life? Is it being spent on growing in God and growing in Christ? He says this in Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 17. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul is praying for the church. He's praying on his knees before the church. He says, this is what brings me to my knees, that God might strengthen you by his spirit, that he might give you power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God prays that, Paul prays, and God does pray, that we would be strengthened with power by his spirit. It's the idea that God would transform us at our deepest level. Whenever Paul says inner being, it's a phrase actually that he uses a lot in the New Testament. It sometimes says inner man as well. And what that is, the inner being, the inner man, it's, it's, it's really a synonym for your heart. And in Paul's day, the heart wasn't the center of your emotions. The heart was the center of everything that you are. It was kind of the, the motivating engine of your entire life. What is it that propels you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that captures you? What is it that controls your entire personality? What is it that you put your hope in, find your happiness and joy in. Paul is saying, I want that center of who you are to be strengthened with the power of God's spirit. I want it to be transformed so that Christ can dwell in you through faith. When you think about what God desires most for you, this is it. What God desires for your life. If you're, if you're sat here this morning wondering, what does God want for me? He wants your inner being to be strengthened through the power of his spirit, to be renewed. When Paul's praying for the Ephesians, he's not praying for their circumstances. Lord knows there were so many things going on in the Ephesian church and the churches around Ephesus that he could have prayed for. Persecution, politics, all kinds of different things. But Paul says, what you need most, what I am on my knees before God for you is, is that your inner being would be strengthened, transformed. A change of character in who you are. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to another church in Corinth, and he says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The same phrase again, inner self, inner being. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying, let's, let's get a better perspective. Let's think about the things that are gonna last, the things that are eternal. These momentary afflictions, these circumstances, although painful and difficult, the things around us, those things are going to pass. And what's going to last forever is the work of God in our hearts. So what is God doing in your heart? What is God doing in your inner being? Are you being transformed? Are you being renewed day by day? Imagine that there's scar tissue in the very depths of your soul from sin. Sin that you have committed 
or sin that others have committed against you. It, it creates this scar tissue inside of us that affects how we react. Because again, remember that, that heart, that inner being is what drives everything else. So if there's scar tissue in there, if there's broken things in there, it can influence the way that we respond to others. We can become bitter because of sin. We can become angry because of sin. We can become dejected, disillusioned. We can become isolated. There's so many different ways in which sin that we commit and sin that is committed against us can drive us, the scar tissue that forms in us. And so what God wants to do is by the power of his spirit is remove that scar tissue. The way the Bible talks about this is take the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It's totally renew us from the depths of who we are. As we put our faith in Christ, as we grow in our faith in Christ, we are strengthened because there's something new growing in us, something eternal growing in us that governs us and motivates us, even as the circumstances around us go up and down and change. We've all had that friend who has faced circumstances that are unbelievably difficult, painful even, people who've gone through suffering, and yet when we spend time with them, we can see their inner being because out of them, even in the midst of their suffering, streams graciousness and kindness and patience. All these things that God is, by his incredible power, working into the inner being of who they are. And on the, on the flip side of that, we've all had a friend who despite the really wonderful things around them, seem to be bitter, seem to be isolated seem to be self-centered. What's happening in both of those people is that their inner being is being exposed. Whatever is inside of them is coming out. You see, your circumstances will pull out of you what is inside of you. So what is inside of you? What's in the core of who you are? Is it the news and the truth that God has loved you in Christ, that he has given himself for you, that he's renewing you day by day? Or is it something else? Have you asked God on your knees, as Paul is, for him to strengthen you, to give you power, for Christ to dwell in your hearts. Do you know why they need to be strengthened? Because only God's power can accomplish this. You can't do this. You can't change your own inner being. You can't transform the very core of who you are. You need the power of God to do that. You need Christ to dwell in your heart. Now what's odd about this is, remember, this, these are Christians that Paul is writing to. These are not people who haven't heard this message before. Don't you find it odd that Paul would say to a church, a group of believers, that Christ needs to dwell in your heart? Isn't he already dwelling in their hearts? Haven't they already accepted this message? What Paul's saying is, yes, you become a Christian and Christ will dwell in your heart. Right then, if you put your faith in him, if you acknowledge your need for him and say, God, have mercy on me, give me your son, let me live in him, then yes, Christ does come to live. But he wants to grow the space inside of your heart for him. Think about this way. When me and Janae had our kids, and if you've had kids, you know that in the weeks preceding the arrival of the baby, you're getting the house ready for them. You're moving things aside, you're decorating, you're creating space, because when they come to live in your home, you don't just want them to reside in a space that's the same, you want to make space for them. It's the same with Christ. When we invite him to come live in our life, he's not just coming in to take up space and we'll keep everything as it is. We are saying, Lord, come in. We want to make space in our lives for you. We want to grow. We want more space in our lives for you. We don't just want you to come and live with us. We want you to take up residence in our life and affect our inner being. 
Paul longs for the church to experience Christ dwelling in their hearts. He says to the Galatians in his letter to them, my little children for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There is nothing that made Paul's heart ache more than his desire for the church to know to a greater and greater degree that Christ is dwelling in them. That he's with them. That he wants to transform them. That he wants to grow in them. He, the other side of this is that Paul wants the world to see Christ dwelling in them. He's saying, I want you to be so transformed that when the world looks at you, they see Christ. Is that true of you? It's been really challenging to me this week to reflect on that in my own life and say, is Christ formed deeply enough in my heart that when people see the way that I react to circumstances, when they see the, see the way that I react to my children or my wife or my friends or my neighbors, are they seeing the way that Christ would respond? Are they seeing Christ at work in my life? We pray that Christ would be formed in our hearts, but we also pray that we'd grow in community. Paul prays for us to grow in community. Do you all remember that time in your life, you're in school, in college, something like that, and you were assigned a team project. Like you were partnered up with someone random in the class and you had to get something done. I remember one time at Baylor, when I was in college, I was partnered with Terrence Williams. Now some of you guys who know football know that he went on to be a big NFL player played for the Dallas Cowboys. At the time, he was playing for the Baylor football team too. Now, I didn't know this because I didn't grow up in America, but I didn't know that football players have a reputation of not really being involved in the team project because they're busier. They've got other things going on. So I show up for our first time together, and Terrence, the hulk of a man that he was, didn't really bring much to the table there. And so I was, I was pretty discouraged pretty quickly. I was like, well, for all of your impressive football talents, now I'm going to have to do a project all by myself. Right? I was frustrated by that. I think sometimes in our faith, we can be very resistant to community with other Christians because we think it's going to go the same way. We think this is, this is going to be on me. Community is not really that good for me. It's just going to frustrate me. Being with other people who are sinful and are messy and have all their own stuff going on, it, they're going to be too busy. This is not going to work out. And so what we do is we isolate. We travel away from community. And we tell ourselves that, that, that really, if I want to grow in Christ, I've got to get it done myself. This is, this is a solo spot. But that's not what Paul prays for. That's not the way that Paul thinks about the church. This is what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 18 through 19, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now you might miss that because it's just a few short words. Three words, with all the saints. But what Paul is saying there when he prays that is, you want to grow in the length, the breadth, the depth, the height of God's love? You want to be filled with the fullness of God? You have to do that with all the saints. And so what he prays for the church is, I pray that you would comprehend this with all the saints, that this wouldn't be a solo spot because Christianity is not a solo spot. You cannot grow effectively in your faith, in your knowledge of God, in your love for other people, unless you are with other people, unless you are walking alongside of them. Paul knew this intimately. Think about this for Paul's life. He was a persecutor of the church. What happens in that original moment is when God blinds Paul, he says, I'm sending you to one of my servants, a man named Ananias, and he's gonna pray for you, Paul. A member of my church, one of my people is gonna pray for you to be healed. So Paul goes, he meets this guy who's very nervous to meet Paul, thinking that he's about to be killed. And yet he prays with him. 
And from that moment on, Paul is absolutely convinced of the importance of the community of the church. Because he throws himself deeper and deeper into it. He gets involved. He goes and meets with Peter and with James and the other apostles and they spend time together. And the growth that happens in Paul's heart, the movement from persecutor to prayer warrior happens because he lives in community with the church. He spends years living with the church, suffering with the church. And this letter, Ephesians, is being written at a period in his life where he's been imprisoned because of what he said about Jesus. He's been imprisoned. He's sat in a prison cell. And you know what encourages Paul in that prison cell more than anything else? The church. The people who visit him and love him and serve him, he mentions it again and again in his letters. I'm so grateful for the way that you love me, the way that you've shown Christ's love to me. Paul had some pretty revelatory experiences, incredible, miraculous experiences. But what showed Paul the love of God most clearly was his people, was the community of the church. So how vital do you see fellowship and community with other believers to the growth of your faith? Is it for you an optional aid, something that's available maybe if you need it? Or is it a critical component of you growing in your faith? Do you see involvement with other believers, sharing in God's word with other believers, singing in worship with other believers, sitting down and sharing meals, serving alongside other believers? Is that critical to you? Because it's critical to Paul. He prays on his knees that the church would together as a community, comprehend the love of God. Paul once wrote to Philemon, a church leader in Colossae. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I love that verse. Sometimes I just want to have it tattooed on the inside of my eyelids. He's saying, when you share your faith with others, you will understand better who Jesus is. When you receive the good news of Jesus in the company of others, you will understand better who he is. And we all know this really because you can't, you can't know love without relationship, right? By definition, love requires other people for it to work. We can't have love with one person by themselves other than love for self, which we all know is not a great thing. You need other people. You need to be in relationship with other people to know love. And when you are in relationship with other people, you'll see God's love better. When you sit with others, you'll get riches that you never would have gotten yourself. C.S. Lewis knew about this. He talked about how, <coughs> sorry, my, our joy is unfulfilled. It's incomplete until we've shared it with other people. We've sat in community and shared our joy together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a theologian in Germany in World War II, he wrote a whole book called Life Together. And he said that you can't follow Jesus by yourself. You can't comprehend his love for you by yourself. You need other people around you. To demonstrate it, we need to be praying more as a church that God would drive us deeper into relationship with the saints, with each other. We share in life together so that we would better comprehend the height, the depth, the length of God's love for us. Too often we are blind to the saints in the seats next to us, and when we are blind to the saints, we're blind to the love of God who has placed us in this family and asked us to love one another and experience his love through one another. Jesus himself, on the last night of his life, his prayer, his beautiful high priestly prayer, it's called, he prays for his disciples, and this is one of the things he says in verse 23 of John 17, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, 
Let me just stop just for a second there. So he's saying, the whole reason that I have come to be in them and that you have been in me and this whole escapade of my life, death, and resurrection is so that they may become perfectly one and so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the more that we become one, the more that we share in life together, the more the world will be able to see that God has loved them. And the problem is, right now, in many places in our culture, we are fractured from one another. We are isolated from one another. We don't share in life together. And so the world does have trouble seeing that God has sent his son and has loved them. Apart from the saints, you'll become forgetful of God's love. For the believer, harsh, critical, impatient, and irritated responses to others are always connected to forgetting. Forgetting who we are and what we've been given in Jesus. We need other people to remember. If you're longing to better know the love of God for you, pray that God would knit you deeply into community. Pray that for this next year, God would give you a longing for his people. And not just the people like you, but the people who are different to you. People who have different experiences. People that might have personality quirks that drive you crazy. People that might vote differently than you. In this year, more than ever, may I encourage us, it has never been more important that we lay aside the idol of politics and we love people who have voted differently than us. We serve them and we give ourselves to them. Because I, I want, and I believe our church wants, the world to see Jesus this year. Won't happen if we refuse to love people who are different than us. If we build our camps and we don't comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints, the height, the breadth, the depth, the length of the love of God. Last thing that I want to hit on before we close this morning is that Paul prays that we would grow in grace. He closes this prayer with this beautiful ending. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is really good at praying. To him who is able to do more than we ask or think. No, that's not what he said. To him who is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think. Paul's trying to be really clear here. Do you understand what God is capable of doing in your life? Do you understand what God is capable of creating in the center of who you are? It's more, abundantly more, than you can ask or think. You can't even begin to imagine it. If you're in Christ, God is at work in you. You can be absolutely certain of it. Right now, if you have placed your trust in him, no matter how great you've performed this week, no matter how great you think about yourself or don't think about yourself, God is at work in you if you're in Christ. It says in Philippians 1.6, we'll go into this more in the coming weeks because this is another prayer of Paul's. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May I remind you, church, you were saved by grace and you will continue in Christ because of grace. Not because of your effort. Not because you pick up the baton from Jesus and say, now I'm gonna run just as hard as he did. No, he runs the whole thing for you. He saved you, he started this, and he'll continue it, and he'll finish it. Your relationship with Christ has not been put in your hands, it's still in his, forever in his. And some of you need to hear that because you're exhausting yourselves trying to make it work. 
You're driving yourself crazy, trying to get involved in as many ministry activities as you can, reading as many books as you can, trying to work yourself into growth. Have you ever seen an apple tree, a fruitful apple tree, straining itself to grow fruit? Have you ever walked through an apple orchard and and, and seen sap dribbling down the trees as they strain as hard as they can to make apples? Trees of all kinds bear fruit because they rest in who they are. An apple tree doesn't try to grow fruit. It just does grow fruit because of what it is. That's why we go back to the inner being, the inner man. What's inside of you? Who are you? Are you Christ? Do you belong to him? Have you given yourself to him? If so, he will complete the work that he started. He'll cause you to bear fruit. And what we need to do is to resist the edge to try and wrench control from him. We need to resist that edge. We need to pray that we would rest in his grace. Lord God, help us to rest in your work. Pray that we would see the greatness of his work more than we can possibly imagine. Sometimes we aim way too low. If he's able to do abundantly more than we ask or think, then that means we are aiming, we are thinking too low of what he's able to do in us. We expect too little. What do you hope God accomplishes in you? Because the Bible teaches you that whatever you can conceive of, it's too small. Every day that we come to God, every day that we gather together as his people, as his church, we look up and God is saying to us, he's declaring from heaven, I can do more. I can do more in you and I can do more through you. I can do more in this church. I can do more in the world. Do you believe that I can do more? Do you believe that he can do more? Sometimes we're too skeptical of what God can do in the church and in us, in our family, in our children, in your marriage, in your workplace, in the community. I do this every day. I wrestle with my fears and my anxieties and I expect too little from God. I'm skeptical that he can do more than I ask or think. Zechariah 4, 6 or 7 says, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's a great Bible name. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. It's Old Testament. Sometimes we can think Old Testament is all about getting the work done ourselves. Grace is the center of the Old Testament as much as the new. What God is saying there to Zerubbabel, he's saying, you got a mountain in front of you, you got something that you can't achieve. It's not your strength, it's not your power, it's not your effort. It's the grace of God. It's the spirit of God at work. And so when you see that mountain, You remind your own soul by shouting grace, grace to it. Whatever the mountain is in your life, whatever the thing is that you just feel like is weighing down on you, don't work harder to overcome it. Shout grace, grace to it. Stare it down and say, Christ is sufficient. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Remind your soul of your need for grace and of the growth of grace in your life. Don't turn to yourself. Last thing Paul prays for is the most important, that Christ would be the glory of his church. This church and the church, capital C, church all around the world, exists for one reason, the glory of God. Not the glory of man, but the glory of God. In fact, we will find our greatest benefit in Christ being glorified. Because when he's glorified, he's lifted up. And what is Paul praying for in all of these prayers that we would know him better? So the more he's glorified, the more that he's lifted up. What Jesus says is, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. 
That's not an ego trip. That's, that's Christ saying to us, if you lift me up, all of you can come and find yourself in me. The more that I'm glorified, the more that the aches and pains of the human race will be able to be satisfied in the one who is sufficient for them. That's why Paul prays that we comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Do you know anything about the breadth of God's love? Do you know about the incredible breadth of his love? That he will call people from every tribe and tongue? That there is no one on the face of the earth who is exempt from his grace? That that his grace can't reach? Africans, Chinese people, people from every continent, every tribe and tongue, No one is outside of the breadth of God's love. You know about the length of his love? We're told in the scriptures that before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain for us. That's the Bible's way of saying before day one of creation, God had already decided what he was gonna do for us. He'd already decided the level of his commitment to us, that he would lose everything for us. Even there at the beginning, the son had already decided, I will be given to them. I'll give myself up for them. I'll lay aside everything for them. And centuries couldn't stop. No matter how much we failed God, no matter how much we let him down, no matter how much we betrayed him, forgot about him, neglected him, God never once neglected us, faithful to us. The length of his love, centuries of commitment and devotion to us. Do you know about the depth of his love? The depth of his love? That even though Christ was equal with God, we're told in Philippians, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he set aside all of his glory and his majesty and he made himself nothing. No one will ever be able to replicate the depth of love that Christ has shown to you because no one can give up as much as he did for you. He gave up everything for you, infinity, eternity for you. And have you heard about the height of his love? In John 17, that prayer that we mentioned a moment ago, Jesus prays, I'm giving myself for them so that they can share in the glory that you and I, Father, have had since eternity past. I don't even know what that means, that you and I are going to share in the glory that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had since the beginning of all of creation. What does that even mean? What is the height of God's love that he would invite us to share in his perfect trinity that we would live life with him in glory forever this is the breadth the length the depth the height of his love c.s lewis this quote just to finish this he says he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess a dazzling radiant immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though on a a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. Dear friends, I ask you this year, I challenge you this year to pray that God would teach you how to spend his love. That he would teach you how to seek him in prayer. Pray that he would make himself clear to you, that his power might strengthen your inner being, that he would form Christ in your heart. Pray on your knees that he would allow you with all the saints to go deeper and deeper into his great love for you. 
pray until it takes you where you cannot imagine and enables you to do what you not thought possible. All for the glory of the one who before the foundations of the earth gave himself for us. Let's pray right now. Father God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel, for the news that we celebrate week in, week out, that we talk about week in, week out, that we search through week in, week out. God, teach us how to pray to grow. Teach us to pray for the strength that comes by your spirit that forms Christ in our, Christ in our hearts. Teach us to pray, to love the church, to love the saints, and to with them comprehend the greatness of your love for us. And teach us how to pray that we might see with your eyes that you can do more than we could ever ask or think and that you are the glory of the church. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm glad that you joined us for worship today despite the uh, cold weather out there. Uh, as we close, I just want to remind you of any way we can be praying for you. We really do want to be that church that doesn't just preach it, but that practices it. So if there's a way we can support you, love you, encourage you, please let us know. I'm available. Our uh, other minister leaders are available. We have a prayer team. A couple of things just to highlight. In this season of, of praying with Paul, we really want to commit to that, dive deep into that. So every Friday here at this campus at noon, there will be space to pray. You can come and join us for that. We'd love to see you. We'll be praying through these prayers together. Uh, we also have that available at all of our campuses, so come and chat with me. If another campus, another day works better for you, it's always at noon at one of our campuses. But now let me close this morning just by reading the very last words of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Stay warm, guys.